New Photic Realm announcement. Uh, submission windows for upcoming issues. Issue 10, the theme is justice. That's hard-boiled fiction with a supernatural twist. The deadline for that will be April 1st, 2020. Issue 11, the theme is kaiju. Giant monsters terrorizing civilization. Deadline will be October 1st, 2020 for those stories. Issue 12, the theme is lycanthropy, which is, of course, self-explanatory. Um, it can be any type of animorph with a bloody twist. Uh, so I guess that's werewolves and Jesus, giant, I don't know. What do people turn into? Seals? I've just got a little seal on my desk, so I thought of that. I don't know. You have to be more imaginative than I just was. Uh, but the deadline for lycanthropy, January 1st, 2021. Good luck to everyone submitting. This episode is Jeans Pukutsa. She is uh, celebrating the release of her latest film, Night Rain, which is uh, in festivals now. Um, we last talked a few years ago about her last film, The Scarapist, uh, which I also recommend. Uh, we had a great chat as always. I hope you enjoy it. If you are a reader, writer, editor, some sort of creative who wants to be on the show or if you want to tell me anything about the show, you can always do so using losingtheplotpodcast at gmail.com and I look forward to hearing from you. But that's all my intro chat, so here is my conversation with Jeans Bakutsa. Hello! Hiya! How are you? I'm good, how are you doing? It's been a long time. It has, it's been a few years, I mean it's... Yeah, a long time. I mean, I think you were starting production on Night Rain when we first talked. I think so. I think and we were. It was this, so that scares me to think that that would have been around 2016. Yeah, wild. You have headphones. You're smart. You don't get all the reverberations and everything. That oh way. yeah, well it's it's like it's after midnight here. I don't want to annoy my neighbors. That's all. <laughs> So where are you now? Where are you now? You were in, where were you? Last Oslo. time you were in Denmark? Oh, Oslo, you, Norway. You yeah. are in Oslo, yeah. I, I was last time. Now I'm in Stavanger, Norway, which is further south. But that's like, I, I move around a little bit for my job. and. Oh, yeah. Yeah. But this is where I'm supposed to be permanently based. So I've been here like a year or so. Yeah. It's going well. That's permanent yeah. for you. <laughs> yeah. That's how about you? Are you in, you in LA right now? Yeah, still in LA. It's hard to believe I've been here now for almost 22 years. I That means I'll have lived in Los Angeles almost as long as my hometown of Milwaukee, which is very strange to think, because normally LA is like one of the most transient cities in the world. So to think mm -hmm. that in one of the most transient cities in the world, I've lived over two decades, that freaks me out. But there you go. That's how it works sometimes. 
and it gets harder to leave. That's what scares me because I love travel, but it's been a long time since I've traveled. I mean, now with everything going on, it's even harder. Yeah, it's not really the time for it, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but also, I mean, you, you're so busy with all your projects all the time as well, right? That's true. That's true. And, you know, unlike The Scarapist, which we shot in the Midwest, Night Rain was shot in Los Angeles and San Diego counties all around. So it was it was right to be here. And then we were still doing pickup shots. Like we did our last pickup shot like a couple weeks ago. Like we're like, and now I see more things I could do to it. I, I just eventually have to say uncle on night rain because, because I could keep picking at it, but I just, it's getting crazy. I can't seem to stop now. It's like, Oh, this, Oh, this could be really good. You know, it's, no, stop. stop. <laughs> yeah, Go on and, to the next one. Go on to the next one. Go on to the next one. Yeah. 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 And, and, um, so you just, but you just wrapped on your, your episode of a podcast. This is your podcast, The Criterion Collective. I was invited in by David Romero and Matt Cedillo. They're my partners. Mm -hmm. And we sometimes invite other people. Today was Douglas Jacobs, who was a very, he's a very talented director, particularly of, of the theater of stage and a, a graduate of CalArts. Uh, we sometimes have guests. Uh, next week is our Halloween week. So we do different films from the Criterion Collection every week. So that's mm. how that, and it's really, it is really fun. And it's really, it's, it's especially fun when sometimes like today we really disagreed on some points and it, it was like fun because it gets heated, but it's, you know, respectfully heated, but it's like, no, I disagree with that. No, I disagree with that. <laughs> so it's kind of nice. I mean, it just reminds you of when, you know, like you're in college, you, you go to movies with your friends and then you talk about it afterwards. And that was the fun of like nice. the midnight screenings and the art house showings and all that that I miss so much, you know, yeah. so it's definitely fun. It's definitely fun. And I like to bring in a lot of the history and the biographical information of people, of the filmmakers and those mm. participants. That's really fun too. Yeah. 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 It's nice. I mean, like that thing that you're talking about is what it's all about, right? You go to see a film and then you, you talk to your friends about it. What does this mean to you? And then it enriches your life. Like that's what it's all about, bringing people together and, Talking. I mean, it must be difficult to keep track of that as somebody who's making films because then it becomes about money and who's got the right wig and, you know, so oh, many other questions. And I, I mean, I've magically, I've, I actually did that for a lot of years and didn't have a lot of success doing it the way they tell you to do it. You got to go after this person. You got to attach that person. You got to get that kind of money. You've got to get that kind of distributor. I mean, I spent like, did you tell me you'd seen it, Leo? Did you actually watch it during the festival, or did you not? I can't remember. Night you... Rain. Yeah, yeah. I've, I've seen it. You can you can buy a ticket to it, like, digitally streaming. Yeah. Oh, that's so, so cool. It. Yeah. So, yeah, so you saw it. So there's a moment, particularly when the character Ava's in the car, and this is a lot of biography. <laughs> this is a lot of autobiography in this moment, clearly. Yeah. And she's talking about how that's, you know, that's two and a half years of my life putting this deal together. It all falls apart like in an instant because one actor who's supposedly a name or is a name decides they're they're not going to do it or they used. Then this does happen in agencies using a project, maybe an independent project to to catapult another project that's a studio project. Well, we've got other offers on the table, so you better do that. This does happen for mm. real or. You know, like the the line when she says, "Well, you know, you know," the agent said, "We can't use her name." 
there was a originally a line after that that said last week he said we could uh, or I dressed up like a messenger and delivered my, the script myself I went through that with a project that had like all the right attachments did everything correctly all the right people and still it fell apart mm. so I guess that's probably then what propelled me to you know what I'm just going to do this the way I'm going to do it because if I keep this up, I'm going to have a I'm going to have projects sitting on the internet movie database that are going to be in development for the rest of my life, and I'll never get things done. Yeah, and so that's what just made me decide that you know what I, I'm I'm just going to do what I can do. I'm just going to do what I can do, and that seems to be ironically what's working. Yeah. Not the way you say you're supposed to do it. <laughs> yeah, I mean, how, how are you supposed to do anything? There are no rules, like. To Not anything at all, at all, you know. Yeah. Especially now. I mean, you see movies like Tenant, which was, you know, uh, Christopher Nolan, which was supposed to be the big, you know, trajectory towards people going back to theaters. It makes $9 million in the U.S., $22 million worldwide, and it costs over $100 million to make. Granted, mm -hmm. this is all Hollywood accounting, but the long and short is that is not a success. Yeah. And all these other Hollywood movies like Quiet Place 2 and Wonder Woman 1984 are pulling out. Because they're like, oh no, you know, people, 20 people are showing up in a theater that mm. seats up to 2,000 or something. And granted, you can only have about 20 to 25% of the attendance now. So that's yeah. part of the problem is that mm. you just, you have a situation where you can only get so many people to a theater. How do you make the money back on big, big budgets, which is pretty much what Hollywood is doing motion picture wise. Mm. It's almost, it's either big budget horror or big budget comic book. Um, I call it tent poles and television in Hollywood right now. It's all about tent poles and television. It's all about these series or series that are streaming. And if you want to see cinema, you sort of have to, you got to rely on the independent community to make it. If it's going to be something like you saw the scarepist and you were like, it passes the back melon also with a, what the hell it was it. When I made this film, I was told this is a multi-genre film. So even the festivals are not going to warm up to it. It's, um, it was called by Jeremy Walker, who did the publicity for Blair Witch Project, Open Water and others, uh, Paranormal Activity. He called it the new noir. Now you see everybody say noir, but at this time, noir was considered like a marketing dirty word. You yeah. don't use that word. Even in neo-noir, like LA Confidential, they totally avoided using that word because it was considered to be non-commercial. I was told two women leads don't do two women leads. Two women lead movies are not commercially successful. You know, you look at movies like Persona, uh, Igmar Bergman, or Mulholland Drive, David Lynch, those are not commercially successful films. Those are artistically successful films. So I was told, well, you should make this the, the therapist character a male. I said, well, you do that and you change the whole dynamic because there's a particular way that a, a one woman attacks another woman. So that's mm. not going to work. So I was told by a couple distributors, well, we, we're not going to do it under those circumstances. It's a great title. But if you're not going to have at least one of the leads be male, we don't know how to sell it. And that's what it comes down. We don't know how to sell it. So now all of a sudden after The Scarapist, you see all these Blumhouse productions with that use hypnosis, that use scary women lead or two women leads. You see movies like Greta. You um. You see all these films, and they're all like, oh, we're multi-genre, we're noir. So this is how it works. So how oh do you get around God. this? Yeah, how, how do you get around this? Someone might ask, expect that if you're doing something that's interesting and creative and innovative, it's probably going to get stolen by Hollywood, and you're probably not going to get 
your uh, your acknowledgement, but you can they can't stop you from creating. And they can't steal the soul of the work. The soul of the work is still vested in the art because it's vested in the artist. So mm. they can emulate it, they can copy it, they can homage it, 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 it when it's done respectfully. You know, imitation is the best for form of flattery, but I'm overflattered at this point. <laughs> but I, <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm more than flattered. But I, I will say that that they ultimately you can do all of those things and you can draw concepts from the material, but you're not going to take the soul of it. Mm. That's can't steal because you cannot manufacture it. It's something that's born into the material through the artistic process. Yes, and Night Rain is an incredibly soulful film. And um, it's good that you bring up, you know, David Lynch. I got big Lynchian vibes in it. It's so much more complex than The Scarapist. It's like, um, it's metafictional. It's autobiographical. It's a story within a story. It's your life experience. It's you playing an actress playing Elizabeth Short. It, it's it's so many things at once. Um, Thank you. Did, I, I don't know what to... Where did we get started with it? How, okay, how did it start for you? Was it? It must have been this Black Dahlia case. Yeah, I, I, I love that you see. That's where I was going with it too. You and I are are almost reading each other's minds now, and I have to say, like openly, that this is one of the things that I think is interesting is that you and I connect first through writing, and I think that's where it really does start is with the writing, with the story. Mm. So, I had finished shooting the Scarapist in fall of two thousand twelve. And I immediately knew I wanted to make a movie about independent filmmakers making an independent film because it was such an experience. And, you know, in union work, it's like you have this very narrow job um, definition. This you, you can do certain things, but not other things, because that's what your union requires. On an independent set, especially non-union, it's like, whose job is it to flip the switch? Who's ever closest to it? Whose job is it to pick up that piece of paper so people don't, you know, kick it or fall over it or it doesn't end up in a scene well whoever notices it you know that's what independent film is like and i remember one of our producers on scarapist she was like literally like sprawled out wiping off picture car as she was calling out like the day's scenes to the to the assistant director and this is independent film but i thought you've got i gotta do something like this I also realized that I really wanted to do something about the 1940s because I had um, I was working on a uh, certificate of film noir studies. I love films noir. I think my own experience with being uh, being a survivor of crime and, and an assault led me to being interested, more interested in true crime. I think I always had kind of an interest in behavioral pathology. I've suffered stalkers now for over 15 years cyber or otherwise, I would say that the the notion of why some people decide they're going to stalk people, even people with some public presence, maybe they're not Jennifer Aniston, maybe they're not Angelina Jolie, they're not Brad Pitt, they're not at that level, but there's something about that person that they kind of latch onto and become obsessed with. Um, so I really wanted to kind of bring that into it. It was the, the Black Dahlia and the Elizabeth Short element came when I realized, you know, if these, part of the dark humor is you've got, you wanna make a period film, but you don't have a lot of money to do it. How are you gonna do that? You have independent filmmakers struggling to make a period film. That's part of the fun. So you have these independent filmmakers, 
you know, even in the tagline where it says, you know, a group of independent making, filmmakers making a low budget period movie right there. That's that's actually intended to be a joke because anyone who's tried to make a low budget period movie knows. And what are you going to do? Have your knights wearing like tinfoil or something? What? How are you going to accomplish this? It was when I saw uh, something on IMDb when they used to have the conversation, they used to have a section where users could just chat with each other. They don't have it anymore, but they used to. Someone mentioned a book by a woman named Mary Pasios, who it turns out she was a childhood friend of Elizabeth Short. So she's the only person who knew her, who wrote a book about the murder and about the woman. And when I read the book, I was so taken by the, the the personability of it, the sense that I was really getting to know who Elizabeth Short was. And when she was interviewing Elizabeth Short's sister, Muriel, Muriel said, uh, mama, meaning her and Elizabeth's mother, believes that one day the truth will come out and Elizabeth will be exonerated. And that's what hit me because I said, dear God, I know what it's like to be victimized by violence and have people blame you or shame you for it. And it's really one of the worst experiences because you do feel that shame already. And someone says something like, well, why didn't you do this? Why didn't you do that? Why did you walk down that street? Why did you wear that? Why did you, why did you, do, why didn't you get up and leave? Or, you know, the agony of having to go through any kind of violence or assault and then have some people basically say you're responsible. And that hit me so hard. That that moment in the book hit me so hard that it became like a mission for me. I've got to bring this woman some justice. I want to find a way to help exonerate her. And how am I going to do that? Because it's not very likely that this famous unsolved murder is going to be solved. Even if we could have a sense of who did it, there would always be room for question because it's a cold case. It's been around for over 70 years now. And I thought, what is, how do you bring exoneration to a person? You tell the story authentically. You bring her dignity. You show people who she really was and that it wasn't her fault. And that's really how Night Rain was born. Mm. Wow. So always so many directions to go with it. Um, I mean, yeah, I think the thing that stands out for me, what you're talking about this, um, when you're the, the victim of something and then people are, it's so unusual the way that they can voice, you know, I'm sure the exact questions that you're answer, you're asking yourself a hundred times a minute or so, and then they start saying them. It's like, how on earth do you think this is helpful? Like, yeah, yeah, yeah no, it's true. It's true. I actually, I mean, I literally, after my assault experience, I had literally people saying, well, why were you there? It's like, because I didn't know that I was going to be assaulted <laughs> because there wasn't a sign saying you're about to be assaulted or this person is an assaulting person or, yeah. and, and it, and it is, it's, 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 it can go, it can range. There are people who are so empathetic, but the negative, the negative side, the ones who don't understand the ones who don't aren't compassionate necessarily. And there are probably many reasons for that. Um, but what I've seen is it, it ranges anywhere from callous to like outright vicious, where you become the person who's to blame for this violence. What's wrong with you that you let this happen to yourself? Mm. And that 
always boggles my mind that mm -hmm. there is this contingent that says that the person who is hurt and who trusts the wrong people or person is the one who's at fault. That has always boggled my mind, always has boggled my mind, and more so the further I go. And it was interesting that this was coming out right around the time, it was right around the time that the Me Too movement was just starting to launch when we were shooting. So the project was conceived before the Me Too movement really came into action, but that the the force behind it and, and the publicity behind it and the press behind it, the media behind it, the Hollywood uh, persons behind it, like Time's Up and all these other organizations, it really kicked in late 2016, around early to mid 2017. So this project was conceived before that, but certainly carried some elements of that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And we have our own stories about the Me Too movement because I have encountered, I, I have a Harvey Weinstein story, which I won't tell this moment, but I do have one. And my whole career would have been different if I'd been a different kind of actress, let's say. Wow. It's, and I it's... don't fault the women. I don't fault the women who made certain choices. I'm not faulting them uh, at all uh, or laying any blame or shame or judgment on them. It's just you make the choice that you make in the moment you're confronted with it. You find out this is who I am. The real question is why do people let this exist, not why is it your fault you didn't deal with them properly. Um, yeah. But I think that something that your film predicts, and it ties into something that's also going on in the culture, is this like resurgence in a love of true crime stories. Yeah. And it's something about, I think, people trying to protect themselves from, from what might happen, trying to learn what the dangers are and so on. And so I think when people say things to you, like, why did, why did you let that happen to you? They want it to be true that they can protect themselves from that happening to them. And the truth is, right. you know, they, they don't live in a safe world. And, and I think that you can listen to all the, you know, all the true crime stories you want in the world and it can still happen to you anyway. Yeah, like, right. but I think that's what this film is getting at. And like preempts because there's like a resurgence in that I think took off after when, like whenever you wrote it. Um, but also I think what you're asking the viewer with this film is like, how complicit are you in this murder by enjoying the story of it? Yes, that's true. In fact, that's one of the reasons why there's a moment where where you know my character Ava, as Elizabeth actually says, you know. I'm real, my family will suffer. Think about that, that we don't consider, for example, that there are still surviving family members. And you have on the internet, you, for example, you have people who go to the grave of Elizabeth Short. This is why they actually will not give out the information anymore. The family has requested. I went there personally and found this out. It broke my heart. The family has personally requested that the, 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 the people working at the cemetery not give out this information because people will go, they'll have a picnic in front of the grave, they'll pose in front of it and post pictures on the internet of it. And I realized that in some way people feel disconnected maybe from the reality of this brutal crime, but they don't consider that there are still people who are wounded from it, that there is still this pain that exists that hasn't, that never will completely heal. The, the family has been through absolute hell and it and it still continues so you know you have for example halloween's coming up he always posts larry always posts uh on twitter you know rethink your halloween costume maybe don't you know make you know big blood stains on your mouth and dress up like a famous murder victim because maybe that's and post pictures all over the internet because maybe that's not 
the best choice. Mm-hmm. You know, it's just this this way in which, and this is men and women, this tendency to to kind of disconnect. I know we're enthralled, like you mentioned, we're enthralled, we're fascinated with true crime, but like Night Rain, there's a way of being very interested in it, but respectfully so, you know? Mm-hmm. So that's, I think, also what I was trying to convey is that there's an empathetic approach to all of this, mm-hmm. to consider the the victim this or the survivors, the families, even the perpetrators, just find a way to, to understand how these things happen, maybe find a way that we can get beyond this kind of pathology that exists globally, because crime is not limited to any cultural group, ethnic group, uh, social group, uh, economic group, it's everywhere. Mm. And I think the more we can understand it, the better that we can help get beyond it, perhaps but it's gonna take all of us doing that. And I think the first application that we need is a sense of understanding, of dignity, of respect, of empathy, of realizing the human, the human being in there. Um, mm. That's important. So that's how I envisioned Night Rain. And I wanted that, because I had not seen any approach like that in cinema. It was, it was always very, it seemed always very exploitative. Uh, very graphic, very exploitative, and very inaccurate in many ways. I mean, we could bust so many myths that exist about Elizabeth Short in one false swoop. She was an aspiring actress. She wanted to be a movie star, many people said, Mary Passios being one of them. There's no evidence that she ever even took an acting class. But this was a time, the 1940s was a time when people like Ava Gardner, for example, auditions for MGM, and Louis Mayer, Reby Mayer, the head of MGM, the president of MGM, one of the founders, famously said, she can't talk, she can't act, she's great, sign her. Because there were these women who were referred to, it's, it's mentioned in the movie, the B girls, the five o'clock girls, five o'clock referred to five o'clock PM. These women were contracted Marilyn Monroe was one of them. Without Johnny Hyde, Marilyn Monroe would have been another B-girl, and she would have just been Norma Jean Baker. Norma Jean Baker became Marilyn Monroe in 1946, the same year that Elizabeth Short first came to Hollywood. That's mm. the connection between the two of them. And and so Elizabeth Short might have been one of these so-called B-girls where you're under contract, but the idea is that you basically service service the producers after 5 p.m. And that's your role. That's how you make your rent. And a lot of women were signed under contract during the golden age to fulfill that. Ava Gardner probably would have been one of them had she not married Mickey Rooney and became Mm. famous. She probably would have been like one of these women. Mm. Yeah. So it's really, you knowing about the history of Hollywood and understanding the context of what Elizabeth Short was making her way out to Hollywood for, I think she definitely wanted to be married to someone and have children, have a family. But I think because her father left their family during the depression, she certainly wanted to have some sense of security, of stability that she did not have growing up. Mm. There are so many factors to who she really was. And she was really trying to be very glamorous and very unglamorous, impoverished circumstances, which I think a lot of people can relate to, especially fellow artists can relate to that. So she's not so different from a lot of us. She was just trying to live her life and trying to find a life. And it got struck down really Mm -hmm. tragically and brutally in a way we've never seen before or since. 
Well, it's just interesting to consider that, like, what what your film has achieved and what like storytelling through cinema can do, and then the industry behind it is just has these elements that are just the antithesis of everything you're trying to achieve. They're like perpetuating the worst of humanity. Um, <laughs> it's insane. You, you notice that. that touched on yeah you yeah. notice that was touched on in the movie some of the that dark uh, that darker underbelly and it's it, this is one of the reasons why in the establishing shots we show the house of you know one of the individuals i don't want to give too much away uh what uh, you know the different houses how they live all in one city you know you see the different ways that people live some people live where they're literally hanging by a thread and other people are living in it somewhere in between and other people are are just living in absolute luxury and they all exist within the same city within the same uh industry uh and uh yeah some people are like what they used to say about film noir uh you know uh, characters and one of the reasons why studios were so reticent to have their stars like Barbara Stanwyck and Fred McMurray uh, and, and Lana Turner or John Garfield play these roles because these were unsavory people who were on the take. They were out for the fast buck. I think it was James Elroy who referred to them as fast buck motherfuckers. <laughs> I met him, ironically. I was coming out of a screening of L.A. Confidential at the Egyptian Theater. They were screening one of the last remaining 35 millimeter prints of the film. And coming out in this, he's very tall. So, you know, no one would normally see me. I'm way down here. I'm like five foot one, but he's very tall. He, he, you know, he waves me over. And the very first thing he says to me, this was, you know, after we'd shot Night Rain, he said, you look like Elizabeth Short. So that was like the first words out of his mouth. And I'd never met him before. So this is a man who's also been, you know, somewhat, is somewhat fascinated by, this true true crime and i know a lot of that also comes from his own mother having you know been struck down killed and he they didn't solve it they never found the guy uh when i think he was all of like nine or 11 years old or something so he's true crime and and the brutality against women has kind of been a fascination for him so it was interesting that the whole time he couldn't stop staring at me every time someone wanted to come up to him he would be like oh i'm so sorry excuse me and then he'd come right back it was like there is, I, I remember meeting very briefly um, Steve Hodell, George Hodell's son, who wrote a book about it, accusing his father. That's mentioned in the movie and why there's so many holes to his theory. But the first time he saw me, it was with Greg Sestero at a screening of Best Friends with Greg and Tommy Wiseau, you know, subject of the room. And I remember Steve Hodell did the, you know, did the kind of this and then did that over his shoulder. There is something about the physicality, the resemblance that freaks people out, especially those who are very interested in the Elizabeth Short story that mm -hmm. freaks them out. And I noticed that even after we shot the film. And it wasn't so much the physicality or the physicality alone that made me want to make a character, you know, who would be portraying Elizabeth Short older and wiser, of course, but the fact that I also felt that kinship about, you know, the victimization of violence, the, the shame of violence, the way that that can feel so isolating. I think that's one of the worst things about violence is that it is very isolating. You mm -hmm. feel like the tragic character in the novel who's carrying a disease and you don't want to spread that out to other people. It's a very painful experience to go through. And I think the only way you can really go through it healthfully is to talk about it. 
and create something with it and share it with other people. You know, the stalker, I've, after having been stalked for over 15 years, that's been so painful for me in many ways. But I have to say that I don't know where that comes from. There's probably, usually there's a, it's many things. They, they feel envious. They feel hateful towards you. For some reason, you remind them of somebody. I don't know what it is. They just, they become very obsessed with the destruction of you because they feel destroyed somehow and you pose a threat to them. I cannot figure this out entirely, but I sort of tried to, this, the, the, there's a character, the stalker in, in Night Rain who really is a, it's like a, a compilation and you're a writer, so you understand this. He's kind of a compilation of different people. And I try to kind of structure the how and the why and, and the what and the when and everything in a way that I can just try to understand it. Yeah. Um, so I, I don't want to give too much away. Of course, we're talking about mystery and suspense. So, we, you know, I don't want to say too much. And with yeah. the Scarepist, it was different. When we covered the Scarepist, it had been out for a few years and I felt comfortable with all the spoilers. But in this case, we are actually just taking it out now to market and um, sale and it's beginning to screen. So I, I don't want to say too much, but I do want to say that, yeah, you're right about the real life thing. Pretty much every character in Night Rain is based on some real life person. Mm. Yeah. Interesting. Um, yeah, when I see this, uh, the the rejected writer guy, I mean, that's very early in the film. That's like one of the first scenes and so on. Um, and, and he didn't even get the right submission window. It wasn't even like you'd read and rejected his work, which isn't even a rejection of that person, but it just goes straight to the heart. It's like, uh, yeah. Yeah, you hate me, You're, you want me to fail. And it's like, that's it. yes, though. of course I know that person. I talk to writers all the time. Like, yeah. It, it, yes, you know, I think I think that that's one of the things I love is I think that a lot of people will relate to Night Rain. Oh, yeah, some, yeah. There's so many elements where you can find that connection that you're describing. And yeah. we've been through that. And I think there's a part of us that has felt that way. The difference is we don't act on that impulse. We kind of step back a little and we think about things reasonably and go, yeah, this, is, this isn't really a rejection of me or even my work because they haven't seen it. Maybe it's not the right time. Maybe it's not the right circumstance. But for example, in Night Rain, you have a situation where unfortunately one event kind of intersects a tragedy and it results in the wrong thinking. <laughs> right? mm, yeah. So, and that can... I, I'm always, that reminds me of a line from the movie, and I believe it was also in the book by Umberto Eco, The Name of the Rose, where the William of Baskerville character says to Adzor Malk, he says, the step between ecstatic vision and simple frenzy is all too brief. <laughs> so there's, and I think that is also what's scary for us as artists is, these kind of people who are artists or want to be artists and and they just they there is this very fine line between what is vision and what is delusion you know mm -hmm. what is imagination and what is fantasy what is real and what is just the dream that is yeah. not realized and i think we have that's why we have to share as artists because that's where in sharing and experiencing a reality together, we find out how to stay, how to ride that line and stay relatively healthy in our own minds, right? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I, uh, 
I started a filmmaking club. I've told you about it. I send you the silly little things that we I make. I love it. I love it. <laughs> where you were, the rejection one. Is... <laughs> yeah, 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 exactly, yeah. I don't even know I how to. I still watch. I know, but I love it. Yes. Oh yeah, no worries. But um, that was like, uh, I started that here, and it's kind of my, it's like a gift to the people here in Stavanger, I think, because like my day job is as an engineer. I work with very, um, technically minded people, and it's a very meritocratic world. Like you've you've been working for five years, so you get the job you get when you've done it for five years, which as you know in art is like, pff, it's it's not like that at all. So um. <laughs> When I say like come come make films with me, they're like, let's get that guy who's worked the camera for five years and give him the. I'm like, no, you're now in a world where that just doesn't work at all. It's um, hard for them to understand. It's hard yes, for that mind yes. to understand that. Yeah, because no, it's very you're much right on about that. You're it's right very on much about- a culture of like um. Uh, I, people on this podcast, like people in life, are sick of me talking about it because I get asked this all the time. Like, oh, how how big is your flat? Um, like what, what company do you work for? Like how much money do you make? And then they're just like, boom, boom, boom. You're number five in my brain of like <laughs> top yes. five guys. Yes. Like, yes. Yes. The world yes. doesn't work that way. No. And so no, I think that, <laughs> I think the art world works in the exact opposite of that, which is just like, you've been doing it for a hundred years. You're the best guy. It's not quite to my taste. I don't care. Um, and it's like, yeah. My my yes. gift to people, like my message from the art world is like, yes, you may be amazing at something. Nobody necessarily cares. Nobody necessarily needs to give you an award or, or even their time because of how much you put into that, right? Um, yes. But the flip side of that is that you you to do it as, as long as you have, I'm sure you have to just have like gratitude for what you're doing and you have to do it only because you want the things you're making to exist. And that's really powerful once you can get to that headspace yes you're absolutely right on about that in fact as you're talking i'm thinking that i've learned over decades from very talented people um film students non-film students i've learned from many many people about filmmaking and i'm still learning so much i'm still learning so much i mean i'll give you an example so oh gosh he'd kill me if he knew you know he'll it doesn't matter (laughs) you know in a conversation, for example, you know, Tommy Wazo says to me, you must have vision. You must do what audience want. I mean, there, right there is that kind of, that line we're talking about. How do you walk the line of both? How do you have vision and do what the audience want at the same time? Um, that's, the, that's the challenge. And he, he gets that, that that's the challenge. Um, and I will say that on Night Rain, I was very proud of the fact that, in uh, in fact, um, we had some people, we had at least three people where this was their first motion picture. Um, some had actually gone to school for, for production design or directorial or cinematography, but they hadn't had a lot of experience and they weren't getting experience because people didn't want to give them experience. I'm very proud of the fact that all three of those people now have seen you know, leaps in their in their artistic life, in their career work or creative trajectory. And and that's to me like Roger Corman did this, which is one of the reasons we are homage him, because he would basically he I mean, we're talking about Coppola, we're talking about Scorsese, we're talking about Hanson, Curtis Hansen, LA Confidential, all got their start because because George because uh, um, um, Roger Corman said, here's some money go make a movie, make it in this amount of time on this budget, 
And if you can do that, we'll distribute it and you'll get go on to make another one. And this is actually also how much, how very much how the studios functioned at one time too, is you weren't just making a career for yourself, you were building careers. And that's also something I feel like what you were just describing, that same mentality goes on in Hollywood. It has to be this person or this person or this person because this is their agent, because this is the experience they have, because this is the projects there's, they've done. And then you watch the end result and technically it's good. Technically, it everything's done the way it's meant to, but it reminds me of a Talo Calvino, Invisible Cities, where they build this one city that's to the absolute correct geographical calculations and astrological calculations, and it produces a city of monsters. You know, so sometimes you have this thing that's so technically correct, mm. but you don't feel it. You don't yeah. feel something from it. You see it and you go, yeah. That was well made. Mm -hmm. That's it. That's it. Where is the spirit of the thing? And that's why for me, I loved what you were just saying, because when I choose people, whether it's actors or crew, I'm doing it very intuitively. And what I had my actors do in Night Rain was because I'm not trying to put an actor in a slot and say, this is the role I need to fill. Because when you're a larger studio with many submissions, that's often how the approach you have to take is we have a slot. How do we fill that slot? It's very mechanical. Mm -hmm. For me, I said, okay, uh, I had the actors tell me about themselves first. Because what I was looking for was not how to fit an actor in a slot. I was looking for the character inside of that actor first. If I can see the character in the actor, then I think this is the actor, or I know this is the actor, mm -hmm. you know? And you watch the performance. Are you believing what they're doing? You have mm -hmm. to believe them. Because you might have noticed that was something I really, really love about Nightmare, and something I've been very proud of in my own films is that I've seen very good performances in my films. Because I watch for that. I'm an actor myself. And I, to me, directing is not just managing a set and a tech team. That, I come from that old school where being a director is first and foremost drawing the best performances from your actors. Mm -hmm. And if I need someone to handle tech side, that's one of the reasons I work with my uh, editor and co-director, Cynthia Sharp, because he was taking care of a lot of the technical elements while I was working with the actors. And sometimes we crisscrossed, but for the most part, especially since I'm acting as well and producing as well, to have many hands on deck, as many as we could, more than I actually originally anticipated. Might Rain took a lot longer and cost more than I expected. It was originally a vision for a very small film, but films have a life of their own and a character and a personality of their own, which I'm sure you've noticed, Leo, that this is how they are. They, they, be, and they, they take on that life like much like a child. You can try to control a child, but a child is gonna be who the child is gonna be. So this film, took on a certain character, a certain personality. It was pretty wonderful. We were very familial. Here we were at the 11th floor of the Biltmore Hotel, historic Biltmore Hotel in downtown Los Angeles, the last place Elizabeth Short was seen alive. And we were in the, uh, in like the industrial part, uh, working away with, you know, trying to work everything out and um, eating together and laughing together. And, 
So we did that for a good, you know, two and a half weeks, three weeks, and it was really remarkable. I still feel very close to the people, and I'm so very proud of what they brought forward because I saw everyone work so hard. And on a lower budget shoot like this, you don't always see that, you know. But then I've always said, you know, it's not. See, this is why if someone says, well, if I if you gave me more money, I'd do a better job. It's like, nope, that's not the person I want. <laughs> because first of all, I don't believe that. I've seen people get more money and not do a better job. Mm. Artists tend to put so much of themselves into something that if you really care about something and you're passionate about something, you're going to give 100% whether you're getting $100 or $1,000 or $10,000, because that's a part of you coming yeah, into that. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It's like, it's what you're spending your time on. What's more valuable than that, you know? It's the like, one thing you can never get back, right? Because, I mean, money, you can lose and get back, but time, time is finite. That yeah, exactly. That's never come back. And like, how do you expect to get noticed by the people who are going to pay you like the extra zeros if you're doing a bad job when you're getting small zeros anyway? Like exactly. they don't see any potential in you. All the listeners need to hear what Leo just said. <laughs> this is very, very critical information. He's 100% correct because people are watching and you never really know who's watching. My actress in The Scarapist who portrays The Scarapist was telling me about an audition that she did. It was down to her and like two other women um, but they had just lost Kristen Wiig on Saturday Night Live, and sh they felt that she was maybe too similar, and she was very down about the fact that she had not been selected for that reason, and I said, don't feel bad, because you never know who saw that and who's watching, and she was like, oh my God, that's true, and within about a year and a half, her and her comedy group were doing a television show for TV Land, so, you know, this is this is why what you said is spot on and you don't necessarily it shouldn't be the motivation what who's watching who's listening what might be happening it it does need to come from you i think it was jodie mm -hmm. foster who said boy if you choose to be an actor just make sure that's what you want to do more than anything in the world when you've got someone who has had one of the longest careers in hollywood as an actress jodie foster saying these things you really want to heed them. And by the way, I know she was a philosophy student at Yale who spent like almost a year on a couch after studying philosophy and not knowing what she was going to do with her life and ended up going back into the entertainment industry. Didn't even think that she said, maybe I can write because there were no women directors of cinema, really, and left. And so she didn't even think it was necessarily an option. And look what she accomplished. Mm -hmm. So, you know, know yourself... Be who you are, pay attention, be good to people, be kind to people, collaboration is really important. All those things matter and work to be your artistic best. Even work with people who are maybe, maybe challenge you. You can't just work with people when it's easy um, because the sometimes those most, if I'm not talking about outright abuse now, but when it's challenging and there are disagreements, sometimes those disagreements lead to fascinating choices. Yeah. Um, so I think all of these things matter when it comes to making film or motion picture or movie or television or anything else. I'm not much of a television person. I'm not saying I'm against it, but motion picture has always been, and film, that's always just been what moved me, what inspired me. You know, mm -hmm. you mentioned David Lynch, that you can see David Lynch. David Lynch has mentored me, our sound designer, John Neff, who is, my God, this man 
what is was the right hand man to David Lynch for many years and did sound design for Twin Peaks, Mulholland Drive, Straight Story, and he did our sound design and sound editing. It was such an honor to work with him, you know. And he said to me after he saw it, he said, you know, this proves you can do Hildegard, meaning my Breath of God movie. And that was really why I, I came to, to Hollywood. I left my master's degree program and moved to Hollywood as a single mother at the time in the first place because I had to make this movie about Hildegard. I had to sh share this woman with the world. You know, and people ask me, where is it at? It's 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 a trajectory. I, I'm glad I'm not doing the magnum opus first because mm -hmm. I'm learning so much on these productions and they all carry their own life, of course. So, you know, it's just, I guess, if I, if I trust it, if I trust in the process and believe in the journey and have faith in the outcome and keep working, at a certain point, I just say, well, this is it. This is the life and this is the work. This oh, is yeah. it. Yeah, 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 for sure. Um, it's, if you're, I, I tell, like I tell everyone at my club, it's like I'm so proud of this club that I've done and everything. You know, when you think film, you think Hollywood, you think, of course, you always think of the very top people first. Um, but I always tell people, like, if you came here on a Monday and, like, we make a silly little film so that you see the principle of it, like, in, in this one room um, and you had a good time, <laughs> mission accomplished. That's literally all I want for you from this. Because, like you say, I, too, like, I get stuff published and then I think, oh, who's who's going to read it? Who's going to pick it up? Like, who's going to email me about it? Um, and the answer, like, 90% of the time, there's no one. So yeah. you have you have to love it for, for what it is. You have to love it for the... Um, you know, and if you're demonstrating gratitude for it, like maybe that that automatically attracts all those other things you want anyway. So every like, you know, you just have to love what you're doing for it. Like you made Night Rain. Like if you'd made Tenet, like how much better do you think it's going to make you feel? Like the idea is there. You're making what you yeah. love with it's people not... that you respect. That's what it's all about, you know. I, I, yeah, and the answer to that is it's it's you know it's Christopher Nolan's movie, not that mo my movie. I remember years ago someone saying to me, a friend of mine, Sean McNally, a very talented spoken word artist. He was in the United States of Poetry with Matt Cook, and he and Matt Cook brought me to Lollapalooza. That was my first big performance was Lollapalooza, which really dates me. That was way back there, and he said to me once, he said he said Spakutsa. <laughs> We often do that, like a like a like a football team. We refer to each other by last names a lot. Spakutsa, don't don't try to be the next Kurt Vonnegut. Be the first Gene Spakutsa, you know. Yeah. And that always stuck with me because I thought he's right. I mean, I have people sometimes saying to me, "Well, you're not Tarantino." It's like I'm not trying to be Tarantino. I don't want to be Tar Tarantino. Yeah. Is Tarantino? I have nothing against Tarantino, but mm -hmm. this is not this is not what my goal is. Yeah. Um, just like I've heard people say, my goal is to make you know, a hundred million dollar movie to be attached as a director to make a million dollar movie. Well, that, you know, that's fine that if that's your goal, but I came to Los Angeles to make Breath of God, to make the movie about Hildegard. And for me, that's what my trajectory is about. So some people would say, well, so, I mean, you're just doing these, you know, lower budget movies. I mean, I guess it's good real or, well, it's a good calling card. And I'm like, I don't make calling cards. I make films. I love making films and I'm making films. Yeah, this yeah, is yeah. not a what it's going to lead to so much is I, I just knew that I, at a certain point, as soon as I read that thing about Elizabeth Short and one day we believe she'll be exonerated, that was it. I had to make this movie. I had to make Night Rain. I had to make a movie about independent filmmaking. I had to make a really, truly authentic and dignified treatment of Elizabeth Short's tragic 
murder I, and the events leading up to it in her life, I had to do that. That just became the thing I had to do. Mm -hmm. So the idea that this is like real or a calling card or something that's supposed to get me to the television program, the, 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 the bigger paycheck or whatever, I'm not anybody who wants that. I'm not putting them down. It's just, that's not where I live. Mm -hmm. And so the idea that that's also why I'm really bothered by this idea of the word success for some people, because for some people, success means whatever they define success as. Mm -hmm. For me, success is, are you doing what you love? Check. Are you still, are you surviving? Check. Are yeah. you a good person? Check. Are you growing as an artist? Check, 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 check. That's do, you have, what, do you have enough time with loved ones? Like, yes, you know, yes, you have yes. nice dinners. <laughs> yes. do, you, do you live? Do you live your life or do you spend your whole life kind of thinking about whatever is above you? What's next? What, yeah. what more, more, it's not enough. More, more, more. I just can't. And I know I probably sound horribly un-American when I say this. And I remember performing uh, The American Dream is Alive in Glasgow. In fact, I think it was that CD that led you to me because you heard the Sluts poem. And on that same disc is a poem that American Dream is Alive. I remember after performing that in Glasgow at Ladyfest, coming down off the stage and tons of people coming to me and saying, we all knew this. We didn't know Americans knew this, that this chase after the almighty dollar can just lead to absolute devastation. And I said, no, there are those of us who do know this. It's just you don't often see that, but it is there. Particularly, artists understand. Oh yeah, um, yeah, yeah, of course. How 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 that doesn't lead you where your heart wants to go most mm -hmm. of the time, and you can't serve two masters, and you do make decisions. I'm coming back to Harvey Weinstein, I was in a meeting. I won't say with whom because I guess it wouldn't really be fair to her, but. Um, we were talking and she said what, you know, we were talking about Breath of God. And this was, you know, I, I want to say this was probably close to two decades ago. And she said, um, so what are you willing to do um, to, 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 to get this movie made? And I said, oh, I'm from the Midwest. I'm a hard worker. I know I have a strong work ethic. I'm dedicated to this project. You have my full commitment. And she went, no, 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 no. What are you willing to do? to get this project made. And I said, oh, no. <laughs> I said, I'm not that kind of actress. And then she said, well, then I would suggest that you're going to want to produce this movie yourself. We'll continue to track it as a potential distribution acquisition, but you're not going to make this movie here. That was it. Oh, that my God. That was it. That was it. That's the way it was. And you're right. The tragedy is that imagine how different, I mean, I'm not regretting my life now but imagine how different my life would have been if i hadn't if it if my career hadn't hinged on that one choice well my first thought was i'm so glad that film doesn't exist now <laughs> like, you know because it's, it's not worth it is it no not for me I, it's I, not I worth your dignity I'm not, no. I'm not judging i mean well maybe i'm judging harvey weinstein <laughs> but of course I'm, you can i think that's fair <laughs> certain choices and some we're aware of and some it's still in question but you know the reality is that it's an unfortunate that it comes down to that choice for yeah. some people and i'm not even going to say it's just women i met men who the fur their first day as a junior agent or as an assistant at william morris said the first thing i was confronted with was this or this so it can happen to anybody 
Mm-hmm. Uh, Me is not, and I, I know, I won't mention their names, it's not fair, but I know of at least two quite famous men who have been groped by women very inappropriately in just a, in a public, in a public scenario. And it's, you know, the idea that because you're a public person, suddenly you're public property, that's extremely disturbing. Mm. That's treating a person like an object. And you know, the, it's like even Sartre, that was one of his better moments when subject becomes object, you have really lost humanity in that moment. You have lost something far too precious and it's not worth it. Nothing is worth that. Nothing in the world is worth losing yours and someone else's humanity. That's the thing. Mm, absolutely not. Um, I'll tell you like a funny experience that I have. Like I've been writing these scripts cause like I, I walk around the town and I go, oh, like where can I get in where somebody won't notice me? And I've got my camera, like where can I film stuff for free? And so like, I've been writing these scripts and like every time I write something that I know will cost nothing, feels like I'm getting away with something. It's like, and also you like, are. as writers, it's like, um, it's pure creativity as well, which is what filmmaking is. People will forget that. So I'm yeah. like, oh, it's, it's only creativity. There's like, there's no money involved at all. I love it so much. Um, and then it, I was at the club. It's a wonderful art form. You know, it was Irving Thalberg, who was one of the uh, executives at uh, MGM during the golden age. And he said, you know, movies, and he made movies like Grand Hotel, you know, with the with the Barrymores and with you know Joan Crawford, Greta Garbo, and he he made a lot of great films. And he said, you know, film. He said, motion picture cinema, it will be an art form. It will be elevated because at this point it wasn't. It will be elevated to that because there's there's no other art form that so many people can relate to. It's so universal, and you have so many different art forms within mm-hmm. one art. Form. I think that's what I love about it. If you want to dance and you want to create visual art and design, and you want to write, and you want to act, and you want to direct, or you want to, whatever you want, you want to stand on your head, you want to pull a circus act, you want to be a chaplain, whatever you want to do, you can do that in motion picture, and you can pull all those elements in. Mm-hmm. And so Irving Thalberg saw the future. He really saw the future. Um, and, I, and, and I, as a Scottish guy living in Norway, can learn that your film was online and then be watching it two minutes later. So, I mean, that's so powerful as well. <laughs> I told the festival, I said, you know, coronavirus has been tragic for so many people, and I regret that, and some people have died, and it's, families have been separated, and people have become very depressed a lot, the economy's bad, so many things. One positive thing to come out of it was, and I told this to the film festival, to La Femme International Film Festival, I said, you know, I really hope you guys continue, even when we can do in person again, to do online. Because in the past, with film festivals, you had to fly to Beverly Hills to go to the La Femme Film Festival. You have to fly to Venezia to go mm. to the Biennale. You know, you have to go to France to go to Cannes. And now you, you can you can actually participate. You can buy your ticket, like you were describing, and you can do this from from wherever you are. And yeah. you've opened up a whole new audience. We had a really good audience the night that we uh, debuted it. Um, we had a lot of people and Larry Harnish was there. Sadly, I couldn't hear him. We had some technical difficulties. Some people could, but he was answering questions, which was so great of him to come and answer questions because a big part of his dedication is not to exploit the Black Dahlia murder case, but to elevate it, to express it, to bring some comfort to the family by bringing realism to it. And frankly, without his research, Night Rain would not have been possible. 
Night rain would not have been possible. In fact, the first time I ever got wind of him was I was watching a documentary that was made for the BBC called Feast of Death. And it was James Elroy's Feast of Death. And there's a segment in a, in a restaurant where we actually filmed in Night Rain, the Pacific Dining Car. That actually wasn't even on purpose. That happened through a series of incidents that we filmed there. Beautiful, beautiful uh, old restaurant built in like 1921 in an old rail car. It's really gorgeous. And uh, so Larry Harnish is in Feast of Death talking about his theories, talking about Elizabeth Short and her realities. And he did so with so much empathy. I was so moved by that. That was really, that was, Mary Pasios was the seed, was the well, and then Larry Harnish became like the ocean of information that made so much of this movie possible. Uh, I'm, I will always be in, really indebted to both of them. And I think the Short family too, because we were given some, uh, some we were given some actually, um, some rare photos, a couple of rare photos to use too, mm -hmm. in the movie. Um, and some some information that hadn't been, you know, previously released and things like this. So, you know, there's courage among people who suffer a tragedy. And that's always extremely moving. And you you can only imagine how painful it must be and must have been. I mean, to to have what what is it about the Black Dahlia murder? There have been many you know, brutal murder, murders or unsolved murders in history. What, what is it about that murder? I, I, think it's the, I think it's the degree of violence, the type of violence. And I think it's also the beauty, the beauty of the inside and out of the victim. And it's where it happened, Los Angeles. You mm. know, people have fascination with LA and Hollywood in that era, the golden era. There is something about it that continues to compel people. Um, I just want the fascination to be to be sympathetic as opposed to exploitative yeah. at the bottom, at the end of it. Yeah. So we didn't, you, we didn't even mention Elizabeth Short or the Black Dahlia until just before we were going to screen it because I didn't want to be another person who's just using this for exploitation. I, it's, it, we didn't even have it in my, um, we didn't even have it in my crowdfund. And someone said to me, that's so, you, you could get so much more money from these Dahlia people if you would just acknowledge that this is what it's about. And I said, no, because that's not what I, I, that's not how I want that to, I'm not doing, I'm not going to use this, this, this tragedy, this woman's tragedy to just, to just get money. I, I can't do it. I can't, I can't, something in me said, I can't exploit her in that way as, as she has been exploited in the past. So it wasn't until very recently we started acknowledging that yes, this is this is, you know, the, the Elizabeth Shorts, uh, her untimely death, the Black Dahlia murder, and and then we can show the the, the treatment of it. So it's yeah. not an exploitative approach. Well, my last observation about uh, Night Rain is like there's a lot of humor in it as well, like always. Um, and like my favorite was the like the director character is like your character is going through something horribly traumatic that I won't reveal, and it's like him and his friend just looking at memes right beside you in the room. And it's like, <laughs> you got off your phone, such like a, a like archetypal male oh. response to, to something terrible. Yeah, 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 yeah. No, that the, I, 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 I really, I'm all. You know what? I love that you bring this up. This is one of the things that I've seen your video where you're performing, you know, where you get that immediate audience response. I love hearing this because 
there were moments in the film when we did, we did a preview screening at the Biltmore in their crystal ballroom, which there's, there's a little, there's more than one element of significance to this, but the crystal ballroom is where the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences was formed. That's where it was formed, was in that room. Um, and it also was where, uh, it was the home of the, the Oscars for some time, the Oscar uh, um, awards uh, event. Um, but it also was the last place that Elizabeth Short was seen alive, was in the Biltmore Hotel. So that's a, so we screened it as a preview to just the cast and crew, and I was fascinated by what people were laughing at. Because some of the stuff I thought was funny, I didn't hear people laughing. And some of the stuff I had no idea was funny, people were laughing their heads off. And I was like, this is interesting. And in the director's cut, you have even more of that. You have even more of that element where it's almost like, I think it's, it, I, I think in some ways it's almost disturbing for people to feel, they almost feel manic. It's like one minute it's tragic, then it's funny, then it's tragic, then it's hilarious, then it's kind of haunting or suspicious, then it's funny again. You know, and how do you do that? But you're dealing with a brutal crime. So how, and John Neff pointed that out too. He's like, I'm so fascinated by like how it jumps between, you know, tragic and comic and tragic and comic. Mm -hmm. I guess it's just my nature. There's something in me that wants to make jokes in the midst of a terrible situation. Maybe that's just part of my personality and character because you mm -hmm. saw that in The Scarifist too. I remember someone saying to me, did you just make a movie that literally makes fun of like one of the most horrific experiences of your life? And I said, yes, yes, I did. And they were like, oh my God, like that's how I'm dealing with it. Um, you know? So um, so yes, I, I appreciate that because, the, you know, I, again, I never thought of that as being ironical or funny, but it, okay. but it is, right? It is, it is, it is. It is. I thought that was so relatable and also how... Um... <laughs> Just like uh, people go, oh God, this horrible thing's going on. And it's like, this is like that time in Sunset Boulevard. And you're like, well, I mean, that's true, but that's really not the time for that at all. <laughs> Just the constant <laughs> references as well. Right. Yeah, which you know, like at a certain point, it's like, could you just stop? Because <laughs> like, yeah, also like... like He's the director and he's so not in tune with people's real life emotions. I thought it was really funny. <laughs> It's like, and he's based on a real character, a real person. This character is based mm. on a real person. And he, I will say that that real life person, I don't want to call him out too much, but it's like, there are elements of him that are, he, he is a very compassionate person, but he has moments of what I would call like emotional autism, where he just doesn't seeing or feeling what other people around him are. So it's not that he's trying to be a jerk or trying to be insensitive. He's just not quite, it's his particular because he does apparently have kind of a moderate level of that or mild level of that. So it's kind of like just not seeing that in other people like you were describing. Yeah. And I have to say Adam Lessar, who portrayed that character, Ezra, did a phenomenal job. And I loved his performance. And he had the benefit of having this person on the set. And then this person was like coaching him how to be him that this character is based on. And this is all going on while we're filming. It's just <laughs> like, this is eerie because, and of course I'm being stalked and I'm being harassed. A few months, I picked up an international cyber criminal. Um, uh, I think in 2016, 
And uh, I was getting like attacked and hacked and all this stuff while I was trying to make this movie. And so at one point, I think I wrote something about, wow, is this life imitating art or art imitating life? I'm literally having what's happening, elements of what's happening in the movie happen to me while I'm working to make the movie. She actually contacted one of our producers and said, you don't want to work with this person. And the person who got the email was like, why do you care? Like, she literally was like, what is this? You know, and it's like the strangest thing to see people doing stuff like this. Mm -hmm. And you're just like, you know, thank God you work with people who really know you that they're going to be like, that's weird. Why mm -hmm. would I listen to this? This is a person I don't even know who they are. You know, yeah. it's just, it is eerie. And you, you wonder to yourself, you're like, God, are you a paid troll that's just gone off the rails? Or what's wrong with you? Or why do you do these things? And again, this is one of the reasons why, ironically, this kind of behavior ended up benefiting the project. Because it fed elements of, well, now we can use this. And I can use this in my performance of what it feels like to be violated or what it feels like to be stalked, harassed. Yeah mocked um you know whatever you want to throw in there so it, it i'm very proud of what the cast and crew accomplished in night rain i um i had a very i had a very good team of people and not a one of them was um was linked to a, a studio or a large agency um but i i was actually there was discussion about doing this film at a larger budget with you know, what people call name or box office uh, actors. I don't like when people say you're not a name. It's like, well, I'm not a name. I have a name. Uh, but um, box office uh, talent, let's say. Um, but I think that actually would have reduced the, I think that would have reduced the story and the believability in Night Rain. Because if you're seeing someone you know is getting, you know, $250,000 a month doing such and such television show or something, but they're trying to portray a, 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 an independent filmmaker who's hungry enough to make a film that they're willing to do it under some circumstances you wouldn't normally do it, it's going to be harder to believe. It, it might even get in the way. I used to say, you know, it's hard to do a period piece with someone if you see them on, you know, if you see them on the side of a bus riding by every day. You know, it's just, it's hard for you to get into the story and the character when you can't necessarily get past the celebrity of the individual. Mm. So I really like the fact that Scarapist was made with people where you would believe those were those characters. I like the fact that with Night Rain, when you're watching it, you can really believe these people really exist mm -hmm. as they are because you don't see them every day. Oh, yeah, you know? absolutely. Yeah. So uh, that's, I, I don't, I'm not, you know, definitely not making excuses or apologies. I'm saying this is what I love to do. This is what floats my boat. And I guess I can do that. And if people say, well, you, you can, or you can't, or you should, or you shouldn't, or I guess they have a right to that opinion, but I, I beg to differ. Yeah. Well, the, 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 the example I was going to give you about here was uh, people were telling me like, Leo, like if you need money for films that like, you can apply to like the local, uh, like the local institutes here and they will give you money. And I said, but I said, I don't know what I would spend it on. Like, like I said, I have so much fun, like, finding f free ways to make stuff. I was like, I, I was like, I don't need any money. Isn't that cool? <laughs> like, now I can do whatever I want, right? And then they were like, well, 
you make a good point. I hate to interrupt you, but you know, money, yeah, okay. money from anywhere comes from with a price. I mean, as soon yeah, as you yeah, take yeah. money, you you have to then answer to no, not that that's. I mean, again, that might that can work, but you, you, if you want to just make what you want to make, you have a harder time doing that when you're using somebody else's money. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So I, I, I was telling else who like, doesn't accept that. You know. Yeah. So I was telling this guy, listen, I I don't know what I need money for. I don't know what I would spend on. I don't think this is the right time for me to be pursuing that. And he says, well, if you do apply for money, you should spend it all. Because if you don't spend all, you won't get it next year. And I said, right, so now now you're pressuring me to spend money I don't even want. Don't Like, why? What? Can we just stop talking about it? But it's so funny how... Um, that's all those well, like he's, he's probably telling you this is how I would do it if I were doing it. You know, yeah. it's like it's like that. And I I mean I get that and at the same time, but I guess I'm on team Leo with this one because it's like for me, you know, again, when I was facing the possibility of making this for a larger budget in a you know, and, and of course it, it would take it would have taken longer. See, I already knew though the risk was you could spend a year, a year and a half, two and a half years or more building your project and that doesn't mean it's going to go yeah that means it's going to get green lit that doesn't mean it's actually going to happen that doesn't even mm -hmm. actually mean you're going to get those people or that particular money it's very complex it's very complex and i think that at the end of the day if you see a way to do it and that's part of the creative creative process that you're describing if you see a way to make the film you want to make then make it oh, just yeah. Yeah. make it you know i mean that's like think how many people just don't haven't made anything because they let like a single one of those barriers get in the way. People give up so quickly, I think. Yeah. Oh yeah. Um, well, I think some of that comes from the fear and, and I can understand the fear. I mean, I, I would never say to someone, I, I advise you to live the way I live. I mean, yeah. I live on the brink most of the time. I feel like I'm teetering on a cliff and then I've, you know, got crazy people and stalkers and all this other stuff. I mean, on, on top of all of how hard it is, you know, and I'm not Tom Cruise. I don't have 60 people in front of me to block me from those people, um, which, you know, in this, in that situation, I wouldn't mind that, but I maybe have three now and that helps. But, you know, it's like, I just think like you, you make, you want to make the stuff you want to make. You want to make the stuff you want to make at the end of the day. You, you do, you do what you can do. You, it's not necessarily a stable existence. It's not necessarily easy. You are taking yourself, if you're really creating and you're an artist, you're taking yourself to some very uncomfortable places sometimes. Um, that's that's the price you pay. I think it was Patti Smith who once said the job of the artist is to to go very, very deep and, and hopefully find one's way out of that and share it with the world because she had lost what her husband and I think uh, Robert Maplethorpe within the same year or year and a half and and she responded to that by making an album mm. to get to work and and to sh you know and she's right that's that's a big part of what the artist does and whether you've got this amount of money or zero dollars or whatever you're doing if there's something in you that says I need to do this you need to do it I don't I don't know any other way to say it 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 may be scary and I think sometimes those obstacles become excuses 
you know, I am I actually I'm so scared to do this that oh yeah 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 I can't go in I can't go in that room anyway because you know there's I think there may be a lion in there and I'm scared of lions. I get that though. I'm sympathetic to that because I can understand. Mm. That's why I say I don't necessarily advocate to people do what I'm doing. What I would advocate is if this is what you want to do and you want to do this more than anything else in the world, you darn well go ahead and do it because life is short and you want to do what you love. You want to do what you love and you want to do, you want to create and that's a part of your nature, then, then absolutely a hundred percent darn well. Yeah, go do it. Do it. So tell me about, uh, making angels. Oh, so making angels. Making Angels is the project referenced in Night Rain. It's also the novel that my character Lana is typing in The Scarifist. Uh-huh. So it started as a screenplay, not a novel. It started as a screenplay first, then it became a novel and a screenplay. And then it's a short film too. It's it's more of a screen test, I guess I'd call it. Yeah, I saw that. Yes, I met Tommy Wazo in July of 2018. And by August, we were rehearsing for this scene. And I was so proud of him. I, I like the madness of Kim George. I kept him in my eye. That was my approach to Tommy. I'm going to keep you in my eye. I'm going to hold your attention. And I'm very proud, actually, of what he did there. He portrays my therapist uh, in, 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 in this scene in Making Angels. And my character, Saja, is a dancer whose life is not going the way she would like it to. And um, that is a segment of the feature screenplay, which we've started working on test shots now. So we're getting test shots. It's very difficult to do in New York right now because the city is just in absolute peril right now. And a lot of things are actually boarded up and inaccessible. So we're doing the best that we can to get some of our test shots and possibly even some of our B-roll footage, if we can do it, it's not easy to do right now, but we're working on it. So we've kind of started the pre-pre-production of mm-hmm. Making Angels. And um, and I'm very excited because I, I like to say about Making Angels, it's a, it's a metaphysical dramedy. <laughs> it's a metaphysical dra- It's another multi-genre film. It's another multi-genre film. It also takes place in a certain period and another period which is like what Night Rain was doing, because I'm just fascinated by history. I'm fascinated by art and architecture and artists who have come before. And uh, this movie is really, it's a love letter to artists, is essentially what Making Angels is. And I've just done two thrillers. And I feel like Alfred Hitchcock, who then wanted to make the problem with Harry, because it's like, I need need something like, I don't want to say lighter, but I need something maybe brighter is a better word. I need to get out of the dark. For a little while, I've been in the dark for a number of years. I mean, yeah. The Scarifist I started working on in 2006, seven, and Night Rain I started working on in 2012. So it took me four years to write the script. It's been eight years to make the movie. Mm-hmm. Um, and and with uh, with The Scarifist, it was like, you know, about the same amount of time, about seven, eight years. So I feel like after over a decade of the dark and the noir or the neo-noir and the true crime, I just kind of want to do something that brings a little more light in and stardust in. So that's the next project, you know, God willing, not good. Uh, Mm. That's that's the plan. That's what's going forward for the time being. 
So that's what I'm working on. Yeah, and 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 working with Tommy was just awesome because he really developed the character. He rehearsed with me. Uh, he thought about what he wanted to wear and how he wanted to look and how he wanted to present himself. So he did the work. He did the work. I was very mm. proud of him. And I showed it to Greg Sestero, his uh, comrade from Disaster. And Greg was like, it's great. <laughs> I think so too. And I told him his my philosophy, like the movie, The Madness of King George, I'm going to keep you in my eye. I'm going to hold your attention. And uh, Greg's like, I like that. I like that. And I said, and there's no good, there's no bad, there's true and not true, quoting Stanislavski. I don't believe in bad art. If it's bad, it's probably not art anyway. Yeah. If it's art, it's art. And putting a qualifier on it, for me, that's not the issue. Mm. It's, did you, was it created? I have so much admiration for creativity, I guess, yeah. that I'm just like, wow, this is awesome. This is great. So you know? good, yeah. I, I totally agree with you. Do you know, I've been looking, I used to, I think before I even was writing or something, I would look at like IMDb, and then you look at the ratings and you go, I'm going to watch that. That's got a good star rating. <laughs> but now, like, now that I meet people who make films, and then I'm like, oh, I'm going to watch that film. And then I'll look at it on IMDb, and I'm like, what the hell score is this compared to, like, what I just saw? What, what is going on? I My opinion, I, like, doesn't I'm line so up at all. Brought that up. I, we, we went from a 7.3 to a 4.9 because we got our 100th vote on The Scarapist, and we have, like, 14 votes. Now, oh, God, now I say this, now there's it's probably, God, whoever's mm. out there listening... You know, some of you are just going to need to go and vote honestly on the Scarapist. We have some people who are just like one, one, one. I'm like, guys, look, I'm, I'm, I'm willing to, you know, get on board with it, it, maybe this or that, or you think it should have been different here, but I just don't think it's a one movie. Uh, it's like, you know, all, all nine votes. Like, it's all mm -hmm. there's some of this stuff that looks staged. And I talked to IMDb, and they're like, yeah, we have a system. We have a system, but we're working on the system because the system is a problem. It's like this kind of mean average that they take, but it doesn't necessarily it's, reflect. It's meaningless, though. It's, it's absolutely yeah, meaningless. Like, I have a, um, I have a critic who says, I don't even look at that anymore because he's so familiar that he's like, no, nah, I don't even care. You know, or you get like the reviews on, you know, it's just so interesting to look at. Actually, I kind of think of it as, as fascinating. We have these reviews that are like, this movie sucks, and other reviews that are like, this is the greatest movie. I'm like, well, at least we're provoking a reaction. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Polarizing. <laughs> the best polarizing. stuff polarizes. Very yeah. polarizing. I've, ne I've never seen, I mean, I'm looking at this going, wow, we've got ones, we've got tens, we've got twos, we've got nines, we've got very little in between. It's yeah. just really, really interesting to see that. <laughs> I suppose one person said to me, don't, don't read your own reviews. I'm like, I'm just going to start following that. Cause like, it's probably better to just keep creating and not look too carefully at that. No, how, it does, how, does it, how does it help anyway? How does it tell you? Cause the movie's anything. made and people can say what they want. I mean, freedom of speech and all of that. I mean, yeah. people can say or do what they want, but at the end of the day, I mean, I suppose maybe they think it's going to deter people, but that's not even necessarily the case. I mean, like you were saying, see, now I know people who are like, when I see a rating of this, that then I go to watch that movie because those are the movies I like to watch, yeah. you know? 
And so, and then that's the other problem is sometimes then they're like, wait, this is better than I thought it was going to be based on what I read here or something. I never agree. I I never agree with them at all. Like I talked to a guy who was in, he was the star of like this werewolf film, this low budget werewolf film recently that you can find in the supermarket. And like, cause uh, we followed each other on Twitter and I was like, oh my God, I feel like I know a celebrity. It's so cool. You were like the top billing. Um, And he was just like, yeah, but you know, I'm I'm like a D-list actor. And I was like, yeah, but I said like, where do you think known names come from? Like, yeah. they come from the unknown. So, well, and some of those actors work more than the A-list actors do. I mean, that's, yeah. that's the way it works. You know, there was there was a story I was um in I was re, uh, listening to an interview, uh, going back to the uh, the the ad the the film adaptation of the novel, you know, El Nome de la Rosa, the name of the rose, uh, um. Oh God, the one now I why am I forget why am I blanking on his name? He was in Amadeus. He plays the uh, Inquisitor, uh, Murray Abraham. Murray Abraham was in the name of the Rose. He was the Inquisitor character. There was another uh, Ron Perlman portrays the uh, Hunchback, and one of the producers was saying, if you look at you know Murray Abraham's credits and you look at Ron Perlman's credits, Murray Abraham was a big star this time, won an Academy Award for Amadeus, Ron Perlman, character actor. Ron Perlman works because Ron Perlman is very workable and very easy to get on with. Mm. And he's willing to take a role if it's interesting to him. And he's not dependent on an agent negotiating a salary that some people won't pay or whatever. And now more and more things are going that direction where it's about franchise or it's about the agency, or it's about what network it's on, whether it's Netflix or Amazon or whatever else. So, you know, that is becoming less and less of an issue. And in fact, I'll go so far as to say the whole notion of an A, B, C, D movie, or, you know, whatever uh, people want to, whatever letter, letter people want to ascribe, that used to be a, a thing because you had the B movie play before the A movie. And that's how you drove people into a theater that doesn't exist anymore. Now you have a movie play and another movie play and there's no, there really isn't A, B, C, D. There is this idea of low budget or what is the quality level and things of that nature, what's the content. But I think if you're going to do something, just be proud of it. You know, just be proud of it. Just be proud that you did it. Uh, and But I understand because you know what? He probably gets enough of that. He gets, he gets enough of, yeah, you're just doing this. You're not Tarantino. You're not, you know, uh, you're, you're no Steve McQueen. You're just doing a copy of the blob or whatever. It is unfortunate that you do get those voices from time to time that can affect your thinking because the reality is you're doing something you want to be doing. That's success. That's mm, great. Yeah. I, I don't know what those people are, but I don't think they're fans. They think they're fans, no, but fans, fans no, they're not treat not. their favorite thing that way. No, they don't. No, they don't. They 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 may they may even find humor in the movie, but they enjoy it. They there's a respect for the fact that someone made it. Um, and I hate to say it, but you know, and this is kind of touched on a night rain. But there there are. I mean, in addition to certain aspects of there's mental illness, of course, and some of these people. Mm. That, I mean, obviously, when it goes to the extreme, I, I mean, envy can be a factor. I mean, I've had these conversations with with some of my associates and and those I've worked with that you know you definitely get the sense that you know for example you have let's say you have someone who's like dark-haired female wants to be a filmmaker and it just so happens 
that three, not one, not two, but three of the women they stalk are dark-haired female filmmakers. I mean, it doesn't take the eight years I spent in philosophy and psychology to go, oh, yeah, I get that. <laughs> I get where that's coming from. You know, and it is unfortunate because in reality, the person feels better for a very short period of time and then they feel worse again. Yeah. And the best thing you could do is create rather than destroy. The best thing you can do is sit down and make something. Because look, you've just described, and there are a lot of people who do it. Uh, and people even who do get signed from it, if that's their goal, it's not necessarily, but you can make a movie with low, no budget. You can make a film with lo low, no budget. And not only are you doing something that's creative that you enjoy, but you know you can share it with people, and they can enjoy it too. And there's a, there's a fulfillment in that as well. And I just feel like that's the difference between doing things that isolate you. I mean, being a hater is going to isolate you, and being a creator is going to bring you closer to other people. So which which do which do you want? It's the to me. The choice is is obvious, and you can't say money is an excuse because you've just told everybody here. And I can say what we did with Night Rain on the budget we had. I'm just I'm still kind of astounded. Like if you remember, there was a scene where Ava's in her office. There are a couple of scenes like this, but there's a particular scene she's in her office. You can kind of get a sense of what the office looks like. That was part of uh, of a of a of a, an entire suite that was designed for Robert Kennedy when he came to Los Angeles and was tragically assassinated at the Ambassador Hotel because there was talk of threats on his life, and it was believed that if he stayed at the Biltmore and handled his press conferences at the Ambassador, that it would be safer. It was safer for a time as long as he was in the Biltmore, and this is a very secret part of the Biltmore, the general public. They opened this up to us. They opened this up to us to a bunch of independent filmmakers because we were treating the subject with dignity and authentically. The Biltmore suffered, its own reputation suffered because some people said Elizabeth Short was a prostitute who brought her tricks to the Biltmore. First of all, the Biltmore is not that kind of hotel. It's not the kind of place you can rent the room by the hour. Second of all, and even the uh, probably most, I don't want to say most important, more importantly, just as importantly or more importantly, Elizabeth Short was not a prostitute. There's no evidence that she was a prostitute. We do know there are like at least I think three men she did have sex with. John Gilmore in his book Severed brought forward this ridiculous, I can't even, it hurts my brain to even think about. Um, he said that Elizabeth Short suffered from infantile genitalia. I've had people come up to me and say, oh, I understand that she had infantile genitalia or she had malformed genitalia or she wasn't, you know, she had her reproductive organs were missing or something. I said, no, 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 none of that is true. That's that's a total myth. There was nothing. We addressed a little bit of that in the movie um, through some of the things that Mary Pasios wrote in her book. There was no, that just didn't, that didn't exist. It's, it's completely... It's just not true. <laughs> it hurts my brain to even contemplate it. Some of these, and it's sad that as Mary Pasios, I think most appropriately said, she said, I feel like Elizabeth Short is a woman upon whom many people, particularly men have projected their dark fantasies onto. And that's why there's a point in the movie where she says, the way you see us, it's what's in your mind. It's what you want to see. There isn't a moment in this movie that doesn't address some aspect 
of this this Black Dahlia murder case. And of course, it's interesting that it's what we choose not to include in the movie. That is kind of a clue as well, because she did not have infantile genitalia. She wasn't a prostitute. She didn't, uh, there's no evidence that she had sex for money. Um, the things we do know about her was that she did not have much, that she was mourning the death of her fiance, whom she referred to as her husband. She never had a child. She never had the chance to really live a life that she probably could have lived. Mm. Those things we know to be true. We also know she wasn't in Los Angeles before two, 2000 or was it, uh, uh, 1946 was the year she arrived. The very same year that Norma Jean Baker took on the name Marilyn Monroe. The same year, almost the same time, the same summer it had happened. So you look at the context of what was going on in Hollywood, and then you look at what was going on in Elizabeth Short's life. It's it's pretty fascinating, actually. Yeah. And how she ended up, the trajectory of where she ended up, and how she struggled. She was she was homeless for the most part throughout her time in L.A. and San Diego. Um, which is why we give a portion of proceeds to Shelter Inc. because it helps families with housing and employment and things like that. I mean, it's a tragic thing. Not having money does not necessarily lead to violence, but it can certainly put you in a position to no fault of your own where it might be more likely, you know? So you feel that, you feel that. And um, I feel tremendously sympathetic towards her for that. Because I've slept on friends' couches before, <laughs> and I've aspired to things and been judged a certain way for my appearance or or something else, and so I feel yeah I feel a tremendous empathy for her, uh, and and it would have been interesting to see the life she might have made for herself. I don't even mean just in terms of fame, but just being able to live, just being able to maybe be, fall in love again, find love again, and. And, and and marry and, and have a child or something, just what her life, maybe she would have been up on the screen even briefly or maybe more, who knows, we'll never know. You know, and so, so to me, that's more interesting than who killed her, who did it? You know, what, what, you know, that's, yes, it would be great if we could find that out, but it's very unlikely we will. And I just chose the most plausible theory. I chose the most plausible because I read so many. And I can definitely say to anyone if you really want to know about the Black Dahlia murder, you have to read the newspaper articles of the time because there's so much misinformation. Someone says, oh, she went to the Crown Bar, for example, in Los Angeles. No, it's actually in the DA files. One of her former friends and roommates, Ann Toth, who was, a bit, who was an extra, and her boyfriend, Mark Hansen, who at one time was a suspect, point blank said, we went there regularly. We never saw her there. So you really have to dig into, you can't just go online and do searches because you're probably going to learn more misinformation about the case than you're going to gain factual data about the case. Mm. And so I spent many, many, many months at places like UCLA Special Collections, at the Downtown Public Library, uh, on the LA Times website, and of course with Larry Harnish. And I and there's a... a uh, a librarian named Glenn Creason who works in what I call like the dungeon or the bowels of the LA Public Library. They're like in the eighth lower floor where they have all the periodicals. And he shared 
some really inf interesting information with me. And a lot of the stuff is on microfiche. And so if you're going to really dig into history, you got to dig, you got to really, you got to dig deep. You got to go in. And what's cool about it is you really begin to discover a sense of who the person was when you do that, rather than just attach, you know, doing it superficially. Yeah. Uh, you, gotta, you know, so that's the four years that it took me uh, were four years very well spent <laughs> writing that screenplay. Uh, and uh, I think Breath of God is was has been what seven eight years and Making Angels might have even been longer. I'm not saying that is a necessity, but it, taking the time with the script, it starts with the script. I always say you can make a bad movie from a good or great script, but you're not going to make a great movie from a bad script. <laughs> it Hitchcock said the script, the script, the script, and I know especially in Hollywood, the writer does not always get the acknowledgement that he or she deserves the appreciation or the respect, but the writer is, is really the, the beginning, the, the beginning of the weavings of the movie because the, the writer is the first storyteller. Hmm. And so, you know, the, my, my admiration for writers, that said, my admiration for actors who incarnate the story is very high. My admiration for directors who bring it to light to bring the vision about the editors who are the second director and storyteller who help put it together, um, who help, and not just technically, but they have to know story to be able to see how to put all those pieces together. Night Rain, we had so much good footage. Oh, I wish we could just use it all, but that would be like a freaking you know, 20 hour series. If we were to just show all the footage, there's so much good footage, but you can only get so much in there. And our, our director of photography, Jay Lopez, he just, he, his sensibility about motion and camera. At times we had eight cameras going on the set of Night Rain. If you can believe that on such a, on a low budget shoot, we had up to eight cameras and so many characters and I'm just so proud of everybody. I just, I'm kind of in awe of what people can accomplish and what they can accomplish together. Mm -hmm. I'm just, I'm just amazed sometimes now that I see it, you know, and I keep wanting to dig into it at a certain point. I have just to say, uncle, it's done. I told the sales reps, okay, uncle, we got to just take it out there. Just do it. I can see all these things I can still do, but I'm going to do this forever if I don't stop. That's the challenge, I suppose, of not having a studio, you know, over your shoulder going, now, it's got to be now. Um, so, yeah, so my, you know, but it, it's time. It's time to let it go, I guess, and 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 go on to the next one. Yeah. It's not easy. Well, it's been so lovely talking to you. I need to make sure I don't wake up all my neighbors because <laughs> I think I'm in danger well, of doing that. Yeah, keep talking. Thank you, Leo, for being yeah. so flexible. You know, it, course, we're helping. Where you are now? It's two in the morning now. <laughs> <laughs> time for sleeping. Thank no goodness worries. you get to sleep in a little, right? Oh, I just love talking with you so much. I I feel like I I maybe over talked your head off here. Uh, no, no, not at all. I I didn't even get through half my questions, honestly. Is that <laughs> so, right? So. Oh no. No, 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 in a good way, in a good way, because I was listening to your answers. It's, it's oh, a nice so thing. It just means that we'll need to talk again. That's all. Yeah, let's do a part two because I didn't mean to like, oh, it's just, there's so you much You didn't, doubt. no, no, no. I, I, I just had, I envisioned like a four hour chat with you. That's why we didn't get through all the questions. <laughs> it was fine. Yeah. It's all good. Oh, it's, yeah. How long were we talking there? Almost two Almost hours. Almost two hours, yeah. 
Oh yeah. That's what well, it was last time as well. Though, yeah. Let's. I would love to do it again because there's there is so much more to talk about, isn't there? Yeah. I mean, I mean, thank you for letting me just go on because you know what? It's like you said when you're passionate about it, you can't help it. You just. <sighs> It's in your, you know, it just reminds me of, we just, for Criterion Collective, we just watched Charlie Chaplin's Limelight. And there's a line where the Claire Bloom character says to Charlie Chaplin's character, she says, I thought you hated the theater. Because he's going back out on stage. I thought you hated the theater. He says, well, I, I don't like the sight of blood either, but it's in my veins. <laughs> You, know, you can't help yourself. You can't help yourself. And I'm so very proud of you for, I love getting your films and they're funny and they're good. They make me, that was the other one I saw actually, now that I think about it, there were two films because there was the one where you were getting the rejection and then there was the one where you're sitting at, you know, and you're like, you're disappearing from the camera. Very funny stuff. I can relate to it. You know, you just want to jump ship when you get that rejection and oh, it's so very, very funny. I, I feel like I'm I'm getting a window into the life, you know, and it's really cool. So I don't want to keep you, but I'm just so glad to be with you and spend this time. This has been really fun again. We need to do it again. Absolutely. I hope I so. Hope I, even, I hope I provided something that is compelling and helpful and interesting and, you know, all of those things because... You know, you just kind of find yourself floating almost like you're going to the thing you love and you you just hope that other people are feeling what you're feeling in that, you know, enjoying well, it. Well, it's a bit like it's a bit like acting and being caught by a director, right? As well. It's like just I'm gonna give it all in and you go, Was that good? And somebody else needs to tell you and so you can we'll go find so it. Yeah, we find it in the editing process, don't we? Oh <laughs> you, uh, yeah. you got it. You got it. I'm looking forward to seeing more films films that you make and uh i'm looking forward to being able to talk again you're right there's so much more there's so much going on right now you know yeah. and if you do a search on mine and tommy's name not only do you get the making angels but you get the background on this crazy copyright case that's going it's still active Ooh. i'm the i'm 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 robert duvall i'm the conciliere to Tommy for this big, this major cross-border copyright case that's going on oh, right now. Yeah, we didn't even talk about that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Please no, let's talk about that soon. Yeah, yeah. it's bad because it's interesting because it has a pretty big impact on, it's kind of like the difference between artist versus content creator. And we can really distinguish those two things. And there's just, there, and that that's just, I mean, again, like I, you're right. I mean, we could keep just going and going. It's like a rabbit hole. Thank you so much. I'm sorry if I over talked. I got very no, into not what we were. I'm just, I think I'm also very comfortable talking with you. It's like, it's almost like we're just sitting in a, you know, in our living rooms, like just like having a, you know, after going out to a movie, just sitting and talking. Like, it's like, that's how it feels. It doesn't feel like the way some interviews feel where you're really conscious of like, I'm being interviewed. It's more like, oh, we're talking. We're just talking, you know? Yeah. It's really I'm cool. So glad. I'm, yeah, I, I honestly wish I could stay longer. That's all, you know. But we'll do it again. Just, just, we'll do it again. again. Please, let's it's, do it again. We went through this last time. It was hard to let you go. <laughs> You're so. It's so wonderful. I'm so glad that we found each other. I suppose, in a sense, you really found me, and you've been so great. You were a contributor to the crowdfund, and you saw the movie. You got to see it. 
which yeah. now it's going to, and now it's gone to, um, it's in the hands of uh, First Focus International. So we're going to see how that goes. And and um, maybe at some point the director's cut and some of the deleted scenes will become available. So that'll be pretty cool because there's some really cool, oh, some really good stuff we had to cut out that I'm like, oh, oh. It was hard. It was hard to go from two hours and 22 minutes to an hour and 46 minutes. That's like almost, that's over 30 minutes of material to cut out. And it's, a lot of it is good. It's just, they, you know, festival says they want a certain length or the distributor said this is going to be the most saleable. But yeah, so we'll see what happens. I, it's been an experience. I can tell you that, boy. Yeah. What a journey. I wish the I wish you the best with it. I look forward to seeing how it goes and, and we'll talk again very soon. I'm excited, Leo. Sleep. Right. I hope we didn't disturb anybody. <laughs> you know, if we, did, if we did blame me, just say, I'm talking to the Sicilian. She's just really, really loud. I'm so sorry. <laughs> She's in Hollywood. Christopher Nolan, do you know how it goes? Oh, yeah, they're so, they're, these people, they're big and loud about everything. <laughs> I just don't know what to do about it, but you know how it goes. No worries. All right. It's always love. you. You Be gentle with yourself and keep creating. So that was Jeans Pakutsa. Uh, I've put some links in the description of this episode of how you can find out more about Night Rain and her other projects. I hope you enjoyed the chat. If you want to tell me something about the show, or if you want to be on the show, you can always uh, get in touch using losingtheplotpodcast at gmail.com, and I look forward to hearing from you. But that's all from me for now. So until next time, bye-bye.